Would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you as the Lord of the universe. And we think of 30,000 people who've lost their lives to no fault of their own. And you knew every one of these people by name. Every one of those people have precious to you. And we pray that you'd unleash angelic support, physical support, and worldwide support into this terrible tragedy in Turkey and Syria. We thank you that when this happens, it unites us as human beings and brings the best out of your people. And we pray that this would be a thing that would um, kind of overrule the violence done in other countries like the Ukraine and the victims there. So we pray for an outpouring of your love and for the survivors. We thank you so much for those who work so hard, the men in white helmets who risk their lives to rescue a remnant in the rubble. And we think of the care that they give and how that is how you seek and save those who are lost and your passion is just comes to the surface. So we pray you would use this event to make us more like you and how you care for every single human being, especially the poor, the broken, the disenfranchised, the immigrant, those who have nothing. So we pray especially for our friends in Syria, that you would bless those that are helping and bring relief and aid to your glory. And we thank you for our missionary, Mark Jacobson, and pray for his continued healing. And we thank you that the right people were there at the right time to save his life. And that you would give him many years of life and strength of days. And now as we turn to you, we pray that we would um, find your presence so dear and so real that your love would penetrate every soul of our being. In Jesus' name, amen. When our call to worship, I'm going to be the leader, and then you're going to repeat it as the congregation. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. Now, all of you. We will sing to the Lord all our lives. We will sing praise to our God as long as we live. May our meditation be pleasing to him as we rejoice in the Lord. So now we come to our scripture reading. And uh, Eugene's sermon today is all about the spiritual life that happens to us when we sing. Connects the right and left brain, as Paul says, uh, sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Would you like it? Singing psalms. So he's chosen the, for the scripture reading that day in Acts when the Spirit was poured out without measure and the love that happened in the singing and the praise. So Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of the bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. 
and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any who had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. And may God bless us with that spirit. Eugene, come and share with us. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Well, over the past several weeks, we've studied the first set of commands the Apostle Paul issued to the Colossian believers in the second half of his letter to them. We've considered Paul's command to put off the lust, violence, and pride that once characterized their lifestyles and to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We've examined Paul's command that they turn from adversarial retaliation to empathetic forgiveness and from scarcity-minded competition to love-filled unity. And we've tried to take these commands not as just a list of things for the Colossian believers to do or for us to do, but as pieces of a puzzle coming together to form a picture of what the church, the community of believers should look like. And what we've envisioned has been good, beautiful, and necessary in a world as broken as ours. But as good and beautiful and necessary as it is, we've also admitted along the way that this vision can sometimes feel unattainable. Though we may see evidence of the Holy Spirit growing, towards, growing us towards this vision, we also see how much room we still have to grow. And sometimes that can be a little discouraging. Sometimes Paul's vision for the one body of Christ feels too far out of reach to ever be a realistic possibility. But it's in such times of discouragement that we must remember the truth that not only is robust unity built on love and forgiveness possible, but it was already achieved in the early church. The passage Brian read for us a moment ago from the book of Acts reminds us that in Jerusalem, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Consider how radical of a unity is being described here. The believers were willing to share their burdens with one another without shame or embarrassment. They received one another's dependence with eagerness and generosity, and they were willing to surrender their possessions for the sake of meeting one another's needs. So free were they from the scarcity mindset of the world and its adversarial current that they saw no possession as personal, but belonging to everyone, sharing what they had like members of one body, the one body of Christ. Well, how did the church in Jerusalem grow into such a radical unity? Luke gave his readers a hint a couple verses before this description, the first ones that Brian read for us. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the first thing Paul wrote about the church in Jerusalem in this paragraph, as if to suggest that this is where their unity began. They had committed themselves to the word of Christ. 
that there would be a connection between the truth and the unity of the church should not surprise us. We've seen from passages like John 8, 31 to 32, that the truth of Christ sets us free from sin and for Christ-likeness, from fear and for fellowship, from shame and for forgiveness, from hatred and for love. Given their commitment to the word of Christ, we should not be surprised that the church in Jerusalem was able to grow into such a clear reflection of the one body of Christ. And we also should not be surprised that, having called the Colossian believers to grow in unity, Paul followed up with the command to rally around the word of Christ. This is the focus of our verses today, Colossians 3, 16 through 17. So let's take a closer look at them, starting with the command in that first line. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The Greek verb conjugated and translated here as let dwell is enoikeo. This verb and the family of verbs sharing its root were used frequently throughout the, Old, the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the original text of the New Testament to describe persons or people groups making their dwelling places in this town or in that territory or some other piece of geography. These verbs were also used to describe the presence of God dwelling in the midst of his people first in the tabernacle, and then later in the Jerusalem temple, and now in the human heart via the Holy Spirit. So Paul in Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The command to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly then personifies the word of Christ, depicting the word of Christ as being invited to settle into the Colossian believer's hearts, like a person moving into a new home, or like a people entering into the land apportioned for them, or even like the presence of God filling up the Jerusalem temple, or the Holy Spirit dwelling within the hearts of God's people. So there is a linguistic and conceptual overlap between the ideas of being indwelled by the Spirit of Christ and being indwelled by the Word of Christ. Just as they invite the Holy Spirit to guide and direct and transform them, so believers are to open their hearts to the Word of Christ, to let it move in, to make every corner of their hearts its own. This is what Paul meant when he added the word richly to the command. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in other words, abundantly, copiously, pervasively, and not sparingly or meagerly. My wife and I used to watch a television series where a group of five very fabulous professionals with expertise in interior design and personal grooming, diet and exercise, and even mental health, these five professionals were invited by struggling people to make over their lives. We've all seen the temporary, skin-deep makeovers of daytime talk shows. I grew up on them myself. This show goes farther, and the changes go deeper, and they last longer. They even have episodes where they follow up with these beneficiaries and show how much their lives have continued to change. Why? Because the people being made over allow these professionals much more access into the various parts of their lives. They don't come in and an hour later come back on stage with a new 
outfit or makeup on their faces. No, they actually allow them into their lives for a whole week to turn it all upside down from the inside out, and we can see the change that it produces. I may have shed a tear or two watching the show, and I genuinely feel that it offers, however unintentionally, a glimpse of what Paul was hoping for the Colossian believers to experience with the word of Christ. He was calling them to let the word of Christ touch every part of their lives, to let it speak to all of who they were in all the ways they needed to hear it, to receive what it had to say and to submit to its shaping as it dwelled within them. And as mentioned earlier, Paul suggested ways for the Colossian believers to do this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. These two participles, teaching and admonishing, they provide practical ways of applying Paul's command. Now, teaching is probably the most obvious way the Colossian believers could have welcomed the word of Christ into their hearts. The word of Christ can't very well dwell in the hearts of those who don't hear, know, or understand it, whether it is through sermons, Bible studies, devotional readings, scripture memorization, or helpful aids like books, commentaries, and podcasts. Teaching is an essential means of receiving the word of Christ. Now, this is a point I don't think we need to belabor. Devotion to the word is, after all, one of our four PBCC family values. And our list of connection groups shows that we try as much as possible to emphasize this way of letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. But there's another way for the Colossian believers to welcome the word of Christ into their lives, and that was to admonish one another in all wisdom. This might be a little bit of a scary word. To admonish someone is to discourage them from continuing in dangerous or inappropriate attitudes or behaviors. It is to warn someone. Another way to look at it, though, is that admonishment is teaching that is moved from the theoretical into the practical. It's moved from the head to the hands, so to speak. It's gone from intellectual curiosity to tangible obedience. It is most often and most wisely exercised in the context of discipleship, where in the safety of empathetic and compassionate relationships, people allow the word of Christ to confront and to correct their attitudes and behaviors. Admonishment as a core function of discipleship is as essential a means of receiving the word of Christ as teaching is. We have to do something with the word and it has to change the way we live. This is another point I think we generally accept. Discipleship through relationships is another one of our PBCC family values, and it is the primary purpose for which each of our connection groups exists. And so there we have it. Two ways the Colossian believers, and by extension all believers, should let the word of Christ dwell in them richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. These ways of receiving the word of Christ come together in another of Paul's letters, his second letter to Timothy. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But there was a third participle in verse 16, wasn't there? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms 
and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Indeed, there is a third participle there presenting yet another way to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And we were already reminded of this third way just over a year ago when we looked at the Christ hymn of chapter one. Back then, we observed that Paul had given the Colossian believers a song to help them remember the reality of Christ, the truth of his glory and grace and gravity. We called it a portable, pocketable sermon they could take with them wherever they went and whatever they were doing. But here in Colossians 3.16, Paul once again encouraged the Colossian believers to use music to enrich themselves in the word of Christ. But notice how high Paul elevated the act of singing. Singing is grammatically parallel to teaching and admonishing. It is not subordinated to the other two as a secondary means of receiving the word of Christ. No, singing is placed alongside them and given equal weight to them. And in case some are skeptical that singing could really be this important, Paul repeated this command almost verbatim to the Ephesian believers. Be filled with the Spirit, he wrote, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with, all, with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is singing so important? Why did Paul elevate singing so high to stand shoulder to shoulder with teaching and discipleship? Our passage suggests three reasons. Why sing? Well, because singing connects us to the future. The Greek word Paul used for singing in verse 16 is only used five times in the New Testament, once in the Ephesians passage that we just read, and the rest in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter five, the apostle John envisioned heavenly beings worshiping Christ, the Lamb of God, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In John's vision, at the sound of this song, the sound of the song triggered the rest of creation to join in singing. And later, in chapter 14, John saw the redeemed people of God join in singing as well. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And again in chapter 15, John recorded, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Brothers and sisters, there will be no teachers and preachers in the new creation. There will be no pastors in the eternal kingdom of God. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying former teachers and preachers and pastors won't be saved. I certainly hope we will be. I'm saying that once we arrive there, and once we know all there is to be known, and once we have become all we were meant to become, we will have no use for teaching or preaching or discipling. We'll just need one index finger to point you know, to the big guy. Why would we need to teach or preach or disciple at that point? So these things won't exist, but there will be singing. There will be worship. 
There will be praise. The future will be full of these things. And our singing in the present previews that future. It enacts that future. It interrupts our present with that future as an already but not yet fulfillment of the promises of Christ, the truth of Christ, the word of Christ. The word of Christ dwells in us richly as we sing, for in singing, we experience its future fulfillment here in the present. The word of Christ dwells in us richly as we sing of all the word of Christ tells us is coming towards us in the future. So that's one reason why we should sing. Why else? Well, singing also connects us to the past. Paul commanded the Colossian believers to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word psalms refers, you guessed it, to the poems and prayers and praise songs in the Old Testament book of Psalms. Many of these psalms were written by King David during Israel's golden age in the 10th century BCE. And even the newest psalms in the collection were already hundreds of years old by the time Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians. Why command the Colossian believers to sing such old songs, especially when many of them did not have an Old Testament reading Jewish background? Well, because there is value in connecting to the people of God who have gone before us. The truth of God, the word of Christ, has not changed, brothers and sisters. Even as revelation has increased, the foundational truths communicated through each stage of revelation have not changed. God has always been gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. God has always been mighty to save and faithful to deliver. God has always called his people to faith, hope, and love expressed in ways appropriate and intelligible to their contexts, no matter where and when those contexts were. God has not changed and his calling has not changed. Connecting then with the generations that went before us through song gives us the opportunity to learn from what they experienced of God and of their callings. Singing the songs they sang in their time helps us understand the calling we've received in our time. And connecting to our predecessors, even if they precede us only spiritually and not ethnically or culturally, this comforts us with the truth that we are not alone, that this journey is, in fact, possible, and that we will make it home as the generations of believers before us have done. Singing the songs of previous generations places us in the continuum of God's people across time. The word of Christ dwells in us richly as we sing, reminding us that its truth is bigger and more enduring than all we can see and showing us the path our predecessors took in faith, hope, and love. Now we can discern one more reason why we should sing. And in some ways, perhaps, this is the most important. Singing connects us with ourselves. Earlier, when, dis- when we described teaching as something that happens primarily in our heads and admonishing or discipling as something that reaches our hands, but between our heads and our hands is our hearts. This too must be touched by the word of Christ. And music does this in a way that teaching and admonishing seldom do. Any student of the book of Psalms cannot come away from the biblical text believing otherwise. 
If there is a meta-narrative to be extracted from the Psalms, it is that when the people of God were overwhelmed with sorrow or overflowed with joy, when they struggled to make sense of life or came to a new clarity about it, when they felt surrounded with sorrow or overflowed with joy, they expressed themselves in song. They poured out their worries and reveled in their happiness with poems set to music. They played their instruments with all their hearts. They discovered secret chords that pleased the Lord. With minor falls and major lifts, they composed their hallelujahs. And when there was too much for them to say, they rested between lyrics and long selahs, pauses pregnant with groaning words, groanings words cannot express. And as they sang and as they played, they found their hardened hearts softened, their sorrowful hearts were soothed, their joy was deepened, and their perspective was broadened as the truth of God, the word of Christ, filled their hearts more richly than before. This is what music and singing do for us, brothers and sisters. They prepare our hearts to be indwelled by Christ's word by leading us to places where we can countenance and release our emotions to God. Music and song express for us the feelings we are often too afraid of or too unfamiliar with to articulate ourselves. And in expressing these feelings for us, they create the space for us to do so as well. Music and song create the safety to be who we really are, showing us that our feelings are safe to name, safe to unleash, and safe to release. And in that posture of release, the word of Christ can enter into our hearts more fully and more richly than before. I was taught growing up that singing is for God, that music is for his glory. And those things are true. Those statements still stand. But what I've discovered over time is that this infinite God and creator of all reality who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and does not need to ask for permission for a hamburger this God needs nothing from us. He is not staying awake late at night wondering if we're gonna sing about him the next day. He is fully content in his own glory and beauty, and so you have to wonder, is this singing really for him, or is it more for us? More for us to heal, more for us to receive his grace, more for us to enter into his presence and see and behold him as he truly is as we lay down our burdens and our distractions and our fears. The word of Christ can enter into us more fully when we sing and when we spend time in worship. If teaching aligns our minds with the word of Christ and admonishing aligns our actions with the word of Christ, then singing aligns our hearts with the word of Christ. And we need our hearts to be aligned with the word of Christ if our knowledge of it is to mean anything at all and if the changes in our behavior are to endure. We need the word of Christ to speak to us at the very deepest levels of our souls to become more than facts we memorize and actions we perform. Music and song takes us to those deepest levels and into those darkest corners, those places the word of Christ most needs to indwell. I believe this is why Paul used so many terms to illustrate what the Colossian believers should sing. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What kinds of music and song help the word of Christ indwell our hearts? Whatever works for you. 
Paul's command mandates enormous flexibility. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs were all fair game. They each had their place in the church. Paul did not waste time trying to decide which the Colossian believers should specialize in singing. No, they were all useful in their own ways. In fact, it isn't even clear, it's not even entirely clear that there is a real linguistic distinction between the Greek words for hymns and spiritual songs. And in case you're wondering, the only technical distinction between a hymn and a song in modern English is that hymns are poems set to music, which can be interchangeable, while songs are defined as a combination of lyrics and music that cannot be separated. The music expresses what the lyrics mean. Now, if you ask me, we're really splitting hairs here. And I think Paul would agree. It doesn't matter what kind of songs we sing. Whatever its genre, if a song helps the word of Christ dwell in us writ deeply, we should use it. So long as it helps us grow into the word of Christ, so long as it helps us receive the word of Christ, so long as it nourishes our faith, hope, and love unto thankfulness in our hearts to God, we should use it. To be blunt, if you're wondering whether we should be singing more hymns or more contemporary worship music or even more Old Testament psalms, the answer is yes. This is not to say, however, that there is no real difference in the various genres of music available to us in the church. Some songs are more instructive than others, while others are more emotional. Some have more words, while others have fewer. Some have no parts repeated, while others are the same two or three lines endlessly repeated. And it's these differences that allow different songs to speak to different parts of our hearts, different corners and at different levels. They are all, therefore, useful for enriching us in the word of Christ. Now, that may be hard for some of us to believe. Perhaps we've come to believe that only certain types of music enrich the church, when I joined the praise team in my youth group with an electric bass guitar, my dad was in disbelief. Sometimes we even come to disdain those genres we've decided do not fit in the church. And this is false, brothers and sisters. This is immaturity. The generality and inclusiveness of Paul's command to the Colossian believers suggests that they, and by extension we, should use anything that helps create space for and receive the word of Christ whether it is explicitly taught or emotionally communicated. The book of Psalms itself features an incredible variety of genres, styles, and types of content. There are Psalms that repeat the same phrase again and again, and there are Psalms that are only a few lines long. There are Psalms that read like an advice column, and there are Psalms that are so full of sorrow and rage that you wonder how they made it into the Bible at all. Why should we not also use this gift of music in all the ways that it comes to us? Though the methods and genres involved might be diverse, the goal of singing is the same as teaching and discipling, to help us become wholly aligned with Christ, to be truly centered on him in everything we do, everything we are. Paul concluded in verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the goal of all teaching, discipling, and singing, brothers and sisters. In fact, it is the goal of all that we've been talking about so far in this sermon series. This is, after all, what we will be doing in the eternal kingdom of God, giving thanks to God the Father as we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
reflecting his character, revealing his love, and receiving his grace in every way as members of his one body. Music can help us grow into this vision to become a glimpse of that future here in the present. So I'm going to invite our brother James to return to the platform, or to come to the platform since he wasn't here before. And I'd like for us to close with a special time of music and singing prepared for us by our worship pastor. James, would you please encourage us? Uh, I hope so. (laughs) Thanks, Eugene. Amen and amen to that sermon. (laughs) Um, Before I uh, play, I do want to... I mean, a lot of you have been asking, where have I been? (laughs) Um, So I just wanted to share a little bit that I am having some health issues that's keeping me from the platform and um, serving. Um, But uh, just want you to know I have some good doctors and I got a treatment plan. And these past five months have been really difficult, but um, God has really blessed me in that I'm able to see um, the musicians that I shepherd um, now have that opportunity to shepherd me. And that has been a great blessing. And that has proven to me that God is good all the time. God is good. Amen. Okay, so um, I'm going to share with you uh, some songs that... um, I have had the privilege to play um, some at the bedside of those that are being ushered into the kingdom of God, into Jesus' arms, some that um, have been to the incarcerated uh, in in prisons, some that have been um, part of this gathering. Um, So this medley is my... um, Colossians 3.16 medley. The first song I just want you just to listen to, and I want you to take it in as these words are your words, and that um, God wants them to be um, deeply understood because you are deeply loved. And then the other songs, if you feel like you'd like to sing along, you're more than welcome. All right.
Stay by 
just love hearing your voices from up here. When I've got my back turned to you at the pew, I can't always catch it, but hearing you sing together and having us all gathered in that special moment is such an important thing, such an essential thing for us, and it requires great pastoral wisdom. And that's why we have a worship pastor, and that's why we have many people working alongside him to help pastor us into times of worship. So I'd just like to invite anyone who's ever been up here or who has worked up there or back in that room, could you all just stand? Even if it's not your, your day today to serve, can you just stand? And the rest of us can choir as well, please. You know, everyone just, yeah, there, there we go. Yeah, I knew some, okay, all right, and, yes. And can we, can we actually just extend a hand to the nearest one to you? Just look around to the nearest person to you, extend a hand to them, and let's just pray for them as they pastor us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift of music. We thank you for this tool of worship. And we thank you that, God, you are not uh, just demanding, trying to squeeze from us every last song for the sake of your ego, but instead you give us this music as a space for us to see you more clearly, to know ourselves loved, and to enter into your truth more deeply and richly. 
But God, we just thank you for these servants who help us do that. We thank you for these pastors, these leaders, these workers in front of the scene as well as behind, Lord, who work tirelessly, really tirelessly to bring us into that space. God, we pray that you would bless their efforts, that you would equip them with all they need, that you grant them all the grace and comfort and refreshment that, that they need to persevere, and that you would use them to bring us all as a body into your presence. And all the people of God said, Amen. But receive now this benediction. As you go from this place, may God put a new song in your heart, whether it's an old song made new again, or a song you never thought could be spiritual that God can bring you closer to him with, or even just a plain old new song that you can learn and carry with you to carry you into the world out there with the love and grace compassion and joy of God. Be blessed and be well.